What's really good, everybody? This is Nathan Allbach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. <laughs> All right, um, I currently have like five unreleased episodes because <laughs> I haven't had any time to edit the show recently. Um, if you are a regular listener, you know this is nothing new for me, so I'm really sorry for being so inconsistent lately. I've been writing a lot and taking care of a foster dog and a bunch of other stuff, but just know there's some great interviews in the pipeline that I think you all really enjoy, and I promise I'll catch up soon, Okay. Um, anyway, let's just uh, get right into today's conversation. Uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Ralph Leonard. Ralph is a writer who spends a lot of time making political commentary on Twitter, which is how I found out about him. I was uh, immediately drawn into his historical and economic takes around race and class and other forms of identity, um, particularly his critique of identity politics, which he makes from the left using class struggle dialectics rather than from the reactionary right, which is where you hear most of uh, the critiques of identity politics. Um, And he identifies as a leftist, particularly a libertarian Marxist, and he also considers himself a secular humanist. So, (laughs) I swear, one look at his Twitter bio and you can totally tell why he's so into identity. It's great. And it's a topic we dive into a bunch on this show, and I don't think enough from just a strictly political framework. Like, uh, we got into how identity weaves into the conversation of race and class, and how important it is to historically understand it and utilize it in today's political discourse. Uh, We also got into the culture war as a whole just in the past few years and how terms like liberal or classical liberal or libertarian and leftist have kind of all evolved in like mainstream rhetoric while certain figures uh, have opportunistically manipulated the playing field like Dave Rubin and it's a it's just an interesting topic in, insofar as how we use linguistics and we categorize political identity um, we also touched on like censorship and platforming and just all that fun stuff that kind of comes with the whole culture war discussion uh, Ralph is a uh, super versed in history and philosophical source material and I really Really wish I had more time to deep dive with him here, but I think we got into some interesting territory for all of you. Uh, the audio did get a little choppy at points, I guess, since we were talking with an ocean between us, so don't mind the lag. I piece it together the best I could. And uh, yeah, as always, if you dig or don't dig the show, please review it on iTunes. All feedback is appreciated, and hit me up on social media, wherever, for all other needs. I'm just at Nathan Allabach in all of them. So yeah, I guess that's it. Now let's get into what's really good. Ralph Leonard, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is the first time uh, we've spoken. I know I, I followed you on Twitter a little while back, and we were, we were just talking a little bit before we started recording here about how I found you and why I found you so interesting, just because not only are your political takes pretty hot and just uh, something I, I find not just agreeable, but just more rare, I guess, for a lot of your 
positions on things, but uh, you also have just a unique Twitter bio describing your identity and your background. So I guess for my own sake, before we jump in here and get into some of these topics and for the people listening, could you uh, just briefly unpack a bit on your background and your uh, political worldview? Okay, well, I'm from Britain or the United Kingdom, though I'm a Republican, so I don't believe we should have a monarchy. But I'm also a secular humanist, uh, leftist, and someone who will call himself a Marxist as well. Well, I call myself a conservative Marxist, which is more—it's more of a tongue-in-cheek thing. But <laughs> if, but as to give a more approximation, I'm more, you know, a libertarian Marxist is more, more accurate, if you like. Right. Would you would you identify as a left libertarian in a way? Sort of, yes. Okay. Yeah, I don't mind. Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, we were talking a little bit on Twitter before we started recording just about, like, what we wanted to get into here, and, you know, I really, uh, particularly on what you post about, I enjoy your critique of identity politics from a leftist position, which I think... I, at least I've found it to be pretty rare in online circles, at least outside of the the sort of like dirtbag left um, sect, I guess you could say, of the the more like socialist left. Um, and I think you'd agree that it mostly like the views, the viewpoint that critiques identity politics in today's like culture wars, like it mostly comes from people on like the new right and like reactionaries. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we could jump into here, but, uh, I guess just to get us started, cause I, this is what I want to spend the bulk of our time on. Like, how would you describe your underlying critique of identity politics? Well, first of all, the question of identity politics is a, is a rather complex question because, what what we call identity politics is usually associated with the left and is comes out of what were called the new social movements that grew around the 1960s. So feminism, gay rights, um, black liberation, third world liberation struggles. And uh, at the time, like at the time, those movements were, I think, a good thing because mm-hmm. they 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 did press on very very real issues like questions of racism and oppression of women and oppression of gay people and uh, lesbians and so on. And they were they did come out of reaction against first the society that was oppressing them and a critique of the mainstream left at the time that was ignoring their struggles. So, Mm. you know, that I was very indifferent at best to, um, you know, questions of racism and sexism, partially because of a sort of a very reactionary workerism that existed on the left for, for a while that partially comes out of Stalinism that, you know, makes a, a fetish out of, the working man, and I mean man very literally. So it had a very sort of very limited uh, notion of what the working class was. And so he sort of saw it as very white, very male, industrial, and so on. However, those movements over time degenerated into sort of 
identity, what we call identity politics, main for very complex reasons. And one of them was how sort of notions of solidarity changed. So instead of solidarity being, you know, uniting people across differences, it was it had a very it became very narrow. So it sort of focused on people who were like you. So and and uh, and also because universalistic identities sort of disintegrated. So so with the decline of class politics, you know, the collapse of communism, which sort of posed itself as the universal liberation alternative to capitalism, then people sort of retreated into sort of narrow identities to defend, you know, their rights. And this is something that's a global trend. So in the third world, or what is called the third world, the various anti-colonial nationalistic movements themselves sort of degenerated into identitarianism with, you know, stoking ethnic and sectarian conflict, as we can see in many, many countries now. So my, so my opposition, if you like, to identity politics comes from, it's not that uh, we shouldn't fight against racism, sexism, or homophobia, it's how you do so. And I don't think, you know, limiting yourself or existing in little silos helps you with that. Right. So, I mean, from your perspective, then, I guess, as a uh, self-identified Marxist, like, would you, I guess, ascribe, in, in our current, uh, I guess, world politics, would you ascribe the uh, the class political system of, of the, I should say, the outlook toward uh, different people groups as a more unifying or more um, pragmatic approach to our differences over the more like gender, race, identity politics, or is there some type of like third way that we should be looking at? I think it's more. I I would more go for a third way because uh, it's more for me. There's a much more underlying issue, which is the more uh, sort of a lack of a more universal humanistic politics that can help overcome these problems we we face. Because, you know, you hear this phrase, because whenever we discuss identity politics, some of its defenders will say all politics is identity politics, Mm -hmm. which I which to me is which to me is a little bit of a cop out. And it's it's so saying, um, oh, we have there's good identity politics and there's bad identity politics. And the way we do this is by supporting good so-called good identity politics against bad identity politics. Well, I think there has to be an alternative, which is to sort of try and revive a more universal and humanistic way of viewing solidarity and fighting oppression. Right. Well, I'd be interested to hear your take on this thought. This is something I've kind of been batting around in my head recently on the topic. I mean, to your point of uh, the critics who say, like, all politics are identity politics. I mean, I kind of I kind of understand where some of those critics are coming from, only in the sense where it almost feels like everything that makes us 
us um, in a way has like an inevitable impact on our worldview and like our place in the world. Like I, I guess as a whole, you know, I mean, like if you know you're born, it, it doesn't matter. Like if you're born, you know, like a white middle class man or a you know um, like Asian upper class man or whatever it might be. Like, you still, like, however you're born, like, your race, your gender, your class, like, these different forms of identity inevitably play some type of role shaping who we are. So, like, I kind of... Well, identities are important because, you know, they give people a sort of a grounding in the world and a way to view their relationship to the world. But politics should be a way not of sort of affirming our identities but as a way of trying to transcend them mm. so like so in a way it almost sounds and like that's, like it's a problem of uh emphasis then in a way so it's like we should yes. be acknowledging that personal identity does have a role insofar as how we view ourselves and how we view our place in the world but it shouldn't be a leading dictating factor that shows our political stances and like shows where we should be taken or how we should be identifying various different identity groups. Is that what you're saying? Yes. But also even that, the various sort of communist and even radical anti-racist movements were, you know, were sort of trying to build a society where you wouldn't have racial divisions, where the whole idea of race became utterly redundant and that a new human society or a new man, as Trotsky once put it, would rise up in its place. Now, you may say that that was a utopian view, but the moral force behind it was in the right direction. Right. Because, I mean, like, I guess, and we can talk a little bit about this. I mean, like, as we've seen today now, I mean, there's all these identitarian and reactionary movements popping up all over the world, and uh, I guess what's troublesome for me and how I view at least the, I guess we, we could we could be charitable and we can call it the fringe of identity politics on the left, which are primarily in this uh, social justice neoliberal subgroup, and it's it seems to me in like an e- in some eerie way, like a lot of the rhetoric and the views that they're starting to espouse are starting to seem similar in a way to a lot of what the alt-right and white nationalist subgroups are saying in their rhetoric, which is, and this this should go without saying, obviously, that I'm not drawing moral equivalency at all here, but just pointing out the rhetorical similarities because, you know, it's interesting how the uh, white nationalists particularly, you know, they're all about you know, preserving white identity, and it's like, oh, like, we have to separate the races, and we have to, you know, preserve our culture, and they, a lot of them point to a lot of, like, black nationalist-type groups, and, like, and people in that, you know, rough category, and they'll be like, I, we understand, like, where they're coming from, because they're just trying to preserve their identity, and we're trying to preserve our identity, and that's when you kind of reach this toxic, um, I guess you could say just, like, overflow of just focus on identity. So do you see that at all, or is that like an overreach, you think? Uh, that's sort of true, but, but at the same time, there is a slight misconception that the left created identity politics and, well, the right are just uh, re- adopting it in reaction. But if you really want to look at this historically, what 
identity politics originated from the reactionary right in um, the aftermath of the French Revolution, which, you know, it was it came up as a reaction against the French Revolution and uh, Enlightenment universalism. So in the Romantic movement, you had various thinkers who emphasized difference and, you know, the unique uniqueness of each Volk or group. And uh, you, know, you had the, you know, various thinkers like um, Joseph de Maestra, who said, I see a German, a Russian and an Italian, but I've never seen man, i.e. man, the universal category mm. representing humanity. You know, he said, I've never seen him before. And if, if anything, it's the left that borrowed the rhetoric of the right mm. on identity politics, not the other way around. So if you like these various alt-right, neo-fascist, um, identitarian movements that we see now are, in effect, going back to their roots. Yeah, it's definitely, it's all been politicized at this point in the culture wars, where, like, I think the the right, or I guess we could say the far right in this instance, depending on how we want to frame it, is done. Unfortunately, they've done a remarkable job at, you know, kind of owning the the battleground in a way where they're they were able to claim like the term identity politics as this bad thing that the left came up with at least in like i'm talking current culture war positions but um and and that's become like a huge issue then because like you have this weird split between i guess what we could call like the the white nationalist far right alt right whatever like amorphous blob we want to call that which are the people that are focused on identity and they actually are basically critiquing conservatives and critiquing neoliberals just by being like hey identity does matter you guys are critiquing the left and you're critiquing identity politics here's why it does matter and then you have like the kind of reactionary culture war types who are you know like your centrist grifters and your your neocons and your people that are just like in the kind of just general right who yeah. they're fighting like the culture people wars. like, like oh, ben shapiro yeah exactly like that. and the, and they've essentially they're the ones that own the space like they're the ones who they they just yeah. have done such a great job marketing all these terms like i mean like even just like someone like jordan peterson who literally made up this term what is it like neo-marxist postmodernist like these are terms that or cultural cultural. (laughs) exactly like like they do such a good job marketing these really like boogeyman terms and then you're right it becomes this Mm -hmm. thing where when most people approach the topic of identity politics like if you run a quick google search or if you run like a youtube search on the term a lot of what you're going to see is like framing it like the left created it and that it's the left's fault that this thing emerged because of the way the argument's been framed yeah and they people like that sort of critique left-wing identity politics like in a very disingenuous way because the, what they're really trying to do is devise various social movements that tap very real issues sexism and you know homophobia and they they just want to delegitimize that and say oh th- these problems don't exist and to point out these injustices is to commit the injustice itself so if you point out racism, you're guilty of identity politics. Ipso facto, you're racist. 
Right, right. I mean, yeah, like exactly. That's exactly. This is this is why I wanted to talk to you because, like, you are someone who's riding this weird line as someone who is critiquing it from the left. Because I mean, like you said, the past few years of the culture wars. I mean, especially online, since the term identity politics has been largely hijacked by grifters on the right and just like, and I shouldn't even say just grifters, but like just the general. Right, like your Ben Shapiro's and your Dennis Prager's and and all yeah. them, as a mean to discredit minority voices that are pushing up against the status quo, and then it also helps just to reinforce their own pre-existing positions and all that. So, I mean, like for you yeah. personally, like how do you walk that line between like staying true to yourself and your own critiques that are based, obviously, in like a pretty strong class and just general like ideological stance? But, like, how do you balance that between not falling into this just easy grift that it's everywhere on Twitter, on YouTube? Like, you could easily, you know, as as someone who identifies on the quote-unquote left, you could easily make a killing by just, like, all of a sudden, like, uh, almost subtly selling yourself out to these, like, center-right and right-wing grifters who talk about this stuff in a similar way that you do. Right, right. So how do you do that? Well, do the Dave Rubin and say, I've left the left and continue to bash the left. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there is no sort of easy, there is no easy way to sort of walk the fine line. But I mean, all I can, all I can do is just say what I believe to be true and to read widely and to be self-critical. Do you personally feel... Um, that you have allies and that you have like some form of a tangible and sizable like political tribe that you can identify with that kind of like reinforces this critique of yours or do you feel like largely isolated to a degree yes um and i that would be from a fellow section of the left yeah who broadly speaking share the same politics you know they believe in you know, because I, cause I used to be a Trotskyist, mm. and you know, there there is a sort of a strand of Trotskyism called the Third Camp, and which is, you know, associated with you know thinkers like you know one of my heroes, C.L.R. James or Hal Draper, Max Shatman, and you know that section of the left, I think, does a good job in you know walking the fine line in critiquing identitarianism and sort of you know reactionary cultural politics that's given a pseudo left spin and at the same time you know uh, wanting to overcome racism and uh, other forms of oppression because because the critique because ultimately the critique of identity politics is that it doesn't get to the root of the oppression that it attempts to wrong to um do right because mm. ultimately if you want if you want to get at the root of it then it will have to be a critique of capitalism and trying to foster a more universal notion of solidarity so if you were in a position where you were trying to pitch that to like a neoliberal say say it's a liberal say it's a centrist say it's a conservative but say they have an open mind to listening to your critique like if you're trying to pitch this um i guess approach 
of, of paying attention to class and critiquing capitalism as a front-running means to um to, to to approaching like these topics of sexism racism etc like how would you how would you do that in a way where the people who are opposed to you ideologically could hear what you're saying you think uh well i would say that there were well because first of all that the critique crit, critique of identity politics is not a white male thing that there have been many quote-unquote people of color who have critiqued identity politics from the standpoint of anti-racist and anti-colonial struggles like for example um, clr james who i mentioned before who was very very resolute in his opposition to imperialism and racism yet he had no time for like any sort of notion of negritude or um, identitarianism and that as he sort of said many times that the way you defeat racism is not is never going to be achieved through some a very sort of narrow notion of cultural politics mm. yeah this kind of um it reminds me similarly at least i don't know if it was necessarily as explicit I forget if it was explicitly um, on the topic of identity politics, but it sort of fits into this framework of, uh, I guess, Marxism versus neoliberalism. But I remember it might have been like a year ago or two years ago when um, Cornell West came out. Can can I ask you, Will, when you say neoliberalism in this Uh, context, what are you trying to describe? Very very good, because I... (laughs) I've, I've run into this a bunch with friends. I'm just, I essentially just mean capitalist in the, in this context, at least. You know, because a lot of this discussion on identity politics within the left, shall I say, is really like an argument between, say, Marxists and broadly what you may call progressive liberals, mm. who are who are quote unquote the pro identity politics side. Because, and I think. What you have to be careful in not to overly demonize your opponent and say, no, they're just all these sort of cynical and uh, self-interested actors. When I think many of these progressive liberals who talk in that sort of identity politics term do so out of sort of a genuine belief. Right. They do. They argue it because they genuinely think that's the best way to defeat racism, the oppression of women, homophobia, transphobia, so on and so forth. So you have to so you do have to be careful when you make this critique. Well, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. That's that's so true, and it's good to point out because I've run into the same issue in a bunch of conversations and just fell for it myself, just in how we kind of parse out like our linguistics and defining these terms and these groups because it gets so messy so quick. I mean, like for someone, especially like even across the Atlantic, I mean, like how Americans and Europeans identify the political spectrum and how we use different terminology, you know, it can really, uh, it can mess up very easily, like what we're even trying to say before we even get to say it. So I just, while you were talking, I quick ran a uh, Google search on this just to make sure it wasn't uh, misspeaking. But all, all I was trying to get at was, um, look, what year was this? This was a uh, 
So it was like two years ago. Cornell West made some critique. He he called Tanahasi Coates essentially like the ne- he called him and I quote the neoliberal face of the black freedom struggle, which essentially like and Tanahasi Coates represents more or less in what you're saying like the progressive liberal side of identity politics where he's kind of like one of the front runners at least of that category over the past several years where he's brought the uh, issue of race like really into the mainstream in a big way and it's just interesting yeah, in this- his essay on reparations that's what made him a big name <laughs> right yeah and like yeah i think it was like a book but um yeah and anyway like i think like that's a good between the two of them is like an interesting and good, um, I guess, example to point to in all of this. And so far as, you know, public figures with completely different fundamental uh, views on the world, whereas like Cornell West is like approaching it from more of that like Marxist class struggle um, perspective. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates is approaching it more from like the specific like identity politic of the black experience in America, like representing the uh, progressive liberal side. And I do think, you know, to what you've been saying, like, I definitely think that there's a lot to, um, there's a lot to take in, like, just from that conversation in general. Because I think for someone like, I'm trying to think, um, like, for someone like me, or for the people, like, a lot of the people that are my, like, relative uh, community, like, I'm in a pretty affluent white community. And it's pretty easy for someone like me or at least someone that, you know, has a similar upbringing and similar traits to me to um, look at what someone like a Tanahasi Coates is saying and feel demonized, almost to your point before, like, and how we, like, kind of, like, use our terminology and, like, we can, we, we want to, like, frame things in the best way, I guess, when talking about, like, our political opposition. And this is something, this is a critique of mine, I would say, of that progressive liberal identity politics camp because like for me personally like I'm at a stage where I don't feel necessarily like offended or hurt in any way when I hear Tanahasi Coates speaking about like like calling um like white people like white supremacists or using um terminology like that's like a little bit more uh I guess we'll just say strong like against uh, like white people in a way and for me personally, like as someone who's like I've read a bit of his work and like I can understand where he's coming from to the degree that I feel like I need to at least to like empathize with his view and and try to understand like where that um just that broader like group of like the identity politic left is coming from because like it is so far removed from my own personal experience that like I feel like it's my duty I guess as someone who's interested in these topics to really like try to understand like where he's coming from but to your point you know i still do think you know when it comes to actually like the broader rhetorical games that we're playing in the culture wars that that language often falls short in terms of like influencing the people it needs to influence because most of the people that i know like let's just say like in the, in the community that i grew up in like i like i said like kind of a mix of lower middle class and then affluent um white people as a majority you know like most people in this category that would hear his rhetoric would be pretty um i guess you could just say scared away you know whereas like how cornell west approaches the um the rhetorical game of class warfare it's a much more all-inclusive um approach and it's more systemic so 
just uh, I guess from your perspective, like how do you view the? Because obviously they're completely different, and there's a lot of like pros and cons we can we can nitpick out from both of those um, camps. But like, how do you navigate that that space in the culture war specifically between maybe like the good points that someone like a Ta-Nehisi Coates is making, but then also like because I know you're a Marxist, like the the more underlying um, class worldview of someone like a Cornell West? Firstly, you have to avoid what, I mean, what is, so, what is sometimes described as class reductionism. I, I, I personally don't like that phrase, but I know what it's trying to describe, mm-hmm. which is like having a very sort of too economistic sort of focus on things where you reduce everything to economics or economic determinism. Uh, Everything is economics where you um, sort of ignore sort of questions of oppression and injustice. You know, to give you an example, in Britain during the, you know, in 1963, there was a, uh, a sort of, protest movement by sort of black people against uh in bristol against the bus uh bus unions against discrimination against black people and uh, the sort of local socialist group sort of wrote an article about it which was sort of it obviously came off as this sort of class reductionist approach where it said well why you know we have to focus on capitalism and yeah ha- and that sort of typified really um what you shouldn't do right because you know obviously in, in that situation those are very clear problems like no the problem is the oppression that the specific act of discrimination that was being protested against so you have to avoid that but i think it also has to require a more I think the only way you can really resolve this is through, you know, a solidarity, is through actually, you know, engaging in these political struggles, like against sort of racism and against black people, against oppression, against women, that, you know, we can all see that the only, that you have to sort of engage with the these questions. And I think through that, you can sort of, sort of build these a more universalistic emancipatory politics because that's the only way right yeah because i mean like that's a great point because i mean i know over the years i've noticed um several like charges of racism or at the very least i guess you could say just like um not colorblindness but just like ignoring oppression and like ignoring um personal identity in a lot of instances on like in in leftist circles which i think is a is a it's more common than most people would assume on the left because like there is that tendency to only see things through class which is like kind of what i'm trying to get at like in balance in between those two perspectives or more having a very narrow view of what class struggle is because a lot of this debate within you know because you see you've probably heard of these debates around is it race or is it class these race Mm -hmm. versus class debates where if you you know get to the nub of it it's really a debate between you know what you may call uh 
social democratic redistribution versus like, you know, Medicare for all versus, you know, race specific policies like reparations. And to me, those kinds of debates are not that interesting because they're very, very narrow, very sort of technocratic, very sort of too policy orientated, where what has to be done is a much, much more emancipatory, universalistic movement from below. In a way, it almost sounds so, like you're uh, describing yeah. intersectionality for, like, leftism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, not, I don't think... <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, that's a whole other... The, the question of intersectionality is a whole other I debate. <laughs> I'm sort of just messing with you, but it is interesting, like, like to your point I of painting... I know, a, what you, I know what you mean yeah. by it. I know what you mean. <laughs> so, like, for example the question of Black Lives Matter and uh, police violence against, or police surveillance and violence against various black communities within the United States is part of the class struggle. That's what I mean, because it shouldn't be just, class struggle shouldn't be seen in this very sort of narrow, the state about economic redistribution, but a much more, emancipatory notion of it right and I, I definitely think you see this i mean it, it just goes to show like like anything else that we all have this binary tendency to when we slip into a worldview like say marxism or socialism or some various sect of leftism that there's this easy tendency for each of us to look at whatever we, we look through whatever lens that we view as like the thing like we almost make it like a religious type of model, you know what I mean? Like we, like I think this is a, it's it's a really solid critique. Yeah. This is why I really appreciate your takes on it, because I mean it's something that I I I come from more often, um, or more so the, I guess the intellectual dark web corner of the web. I mean that's kind of like prior to um like getting more involved in like leftist communities and circles. Like that was back in like 2014, 2015. Like that's really where I spent a lot of time and it's interesting because like I make the same critique now from like for that, uh, I guess you could say like political identity or whatever you want to call it movement because they do the same thing. It's like, it's all these people like um, Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson or Dave Rubin who they've essentially created this tribal identity where it's like, infallible views like they have this viewpoint of the world where they see everything through like everything is seen through the lens of free speech and it's all seen through the lens of censorship and individuality and it's essentially like conservatism just repackaged in this kind of like new i guess uh new age way where like they're, they're a little bit more um liberal, liberal speak ex exactly exactly so it's it's interesting because I mean I think that critique it seems so obvious but I guess it's so hard for each of us to do because like as someone who came from that group like more than anything when I look back on those figures and like the groups within that category like all I want is for those people to have like a good self criticism of where they pl place themselves on the political spectrum but they can't do it like they refuse to acknowledge that. You know, the people on these various... Uh, can you... Oh, sorry, sorry, what was that? 
No, I was just going to say that the, you know, the IDW types, you know, they like make a fetish out of their sort of opposition to the left, social justice and identity politics. And, and it's no, and that leads them to take up some very reactionary positions. Right, exactly. And that's, its, and that's its own beast, obviously. Like, I'm not trying to, like, like with all of this, I mean, none of, none of what we're talking about here, like, we're trying to draw, like, direct um, equivalencies between these groups, but I do, I do you know, find it interesting. Like, like with, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I find it interesting, like, kind of talking about, kind of like this leftist self-critique of, um, just being able to identify, like, when this, this, um, this ideology of look, looking at the world through class as like reductionist means like I think it's so important to be able to self-criticize wherever we fall on the map in a way that's like it leaves us open to like where these other parts of the political map are um, maybe like they have a good point you know like maybe maybe some of like the progressive um, identity politic types have a good point in some of these areas and it just becomes this like severely binary way of looking at the world when we're just like you have to see it through class or you have to see it through race and gender or you have to see it through individuality and and um and like free speech and all these other things so it's like it's just interesting how like we need to get better i think at addressing like our own self-criticism where we fall on the map in order to embrace a more holistic outlook when we approach these issues that's all i was trying to say yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean, like, insofar as um, specifically, I, I don't want to, I don't want to lose the topic of the IDW completely because I know we kind of touched on it earlier, and I know that you and I probably have fairly similar critiques of them and like similar critiques of uh, the grifters like Dave Rubin. So I mean, like when you when you look at figures like them, like figures like uh, like Tim Pool or Sargon of Akkad or these types of people who they guise their political outlook as, like you said earlier, like, quote-unquote, being on the left while almost exclusively, like, espousing right-wing rhetoric to a right-wing audience. Like, how how do you um, explain the emergence of, of figures like that? Or, like, what's your take on them? I mean, they are a very strange phenomenon because <laughs> they... I mean, I know Sargon came out of, like, Gamergate. Mm-hmm. That's when he sort of really became prominent he, out of the whole Gamergate thing and, you know, attacking Anita Sarkeesian because she, you know, pointed out about, you know, she made a video about certain sexist tropes that exist in the video games and um, and then Sargon started belly aching about feminism and how you know <laughs> it's encroaching on our freedoms and etc etc and then i think some of it i think comes out of this you know want to be like a controversial you know a controversialist you know some of them also the hitchens for the wrong reason mm. if you get what i mean right because you know hitchens who you know was used to be a part of the left, but then left the left and started taking the left from the left sort of thing. Sort of thing. Yeah, he sort of became and like a neo-con. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and, and because he was very, and he was very good at it, and 
had a lot of controversial opinions on various topics. So, and his sort of internet presence, I think, sort of helped sort of inspire a kind of a generation of hit, of rather pathetic imitators <laughs> like Sargon and Tim Pool and a lot of these other characters. One of the Hitchens' uh, provocateurs. Mm. And I try not to take them seriously. There's, they have, there's nothing to them. They have no, no Tim Pool. I'm sorry, is not that bright. He's, like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing to anything he says. And while Sargon tries to be this sort of shock jock, social justice anti SJW, you know, and you know, recently here in the UK, he's been. Law of fire for his comments about Jess Phillips, the, the whole "I wouldn't even rape you" yeah, tweet he did right. like a few years ago. Yeah, you've you, have you been following the story? Yeah, yeah, he's getting milkshakes thrown at him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and the uh, sardines as well. <laughs> but they have had a toxic influence as mm. well because they have helped sort of legitimize it. very sort of reactionary, sexist, racist. You know, transphobic sort of points of view that covers itself in a anti-SJW pro-liberal sort of trappings. Yeah, I mean that's the biggest issue I think with um, engaging with them or even like just uh, commentating on them is the fact that they've been over the years so dominant in the culture wars, like especially on platforms like YouTube and a bit a bit on Twitter and like in podcasts, but I know it's primarily YouTube and then it kinda like sinks down in layers. They get you know, and it's like Reddit and 4chan and 8chan and and all that. But I mean like even just on the face, because YouTube is a very accessible public um, platform in insofar as like getting information out there. Like it's a lot it's a lot more visceral than than t- Twitter per se. Like if you're on YouTube and your face is there and you're communicating these ideas to to people, like it, it's a lot more easy, I think, for those ideas to sink in to the viewer versus like if you see ideas written in a tweet. So it does make for like a pretty not. It's not. I don't want to call it scary, but it's just like it's difficult to even know how to approach these figures. Because I mean, like they're on. They're not honest actors and like it's funny because they use that phrase all the time to discredit (laughs) people on the left but i mean it's true like i mean i'm sure you've watched enough content from them and like like quote-unquote debates but it's like they just clearly are like they're just lying about so much of what they say and they're mischaracterizing um like statistics and ignoring things where it's convenient for their narrative and I don't I don't know what the best or the most um helpful way to approach them is at this point. Like do you have any ideas of like like moving forward in the culture wars like from a I guess like speaking specifically from your own perspective, like from a leftist take, like do you find any uh means to be uh the the most effective at approaching them other than just throwing milkshakes, I guess? <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know because me, I, I try to just ignore them and ignore that whole YouTube, um, uh, that whole YouTube scene. I, I just, I don't really have a lot of time for them because so, <laughs> their 
their critiques of the left are very shallow and they they know they have they're so intellectually lightweight they know they're so ignorant about so many issues that i just don't see for just for me personally i don't see why i have to gain in confronting them because mm. <laughs> i because my whole critiques of identity politics and you know questions of universalism and humanism is totally different for them it's and i think much more tries to get to much more intellectually deep mm, like the bedrock yeah that yeah so that and so that people actually sort of gain an understanding of these various and very complex problems which we which we face for them it's just they just see all these questions as a way to attack white men which is identity politics for me right i mean they 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 practice they practice the thing they they preach against (laughs) exactly stuff like calling black lives matter anti-white or a terrorist organization you know you know where they're coming from when they say that. Right. Yeah, that that's a red flag. Yeah, I think um, especially like people like Sargon, or, or especially now, I should say, uh, someone like Stefan Molyneux, who's just taken a, a sharp turn in the past year or so. It just, yeah, he's a, he's a white nationalist. Yeah, like it's, it's undeniable. Yeah. yeah, it's undeniable at this point. And it's just, it's so reaffirming to people like you or I, who I guess who have relatively followed um the culture wars in the past few years just to look at these figures and like over the years you know people on the left uh specifically i'll I'll say leftists because like i think i think people in the identity politic progressive circles roughly speaking although of course there's exceptions of course there's people making solid critiques in there i think a lot of them have fallen over the years for like for the traps that the people in the, these reactionary right camps are setting, you know, like the people like Stefan or, or Ben Shapiro or Milo, like these people who are essentially like they've, they've baited the social justice types, you know, to, to come out and to grant them these sound bites. And that's kind of like how they've built their, their careers, essentially. And it's, and it's so reaffirming at this phase, because for years now, I think people in leftist circles have been critiquing those like Stefan Molyneux or or Sargon by being like, hey, these guys are focusing you know on white identity politics. Whether or not they overtly say that, that's exactly what their rhetoric is is pointing towards, yeah. and they know it. Like it's very clear, like in the in the audiences that they've cultivated and like the style of um of a rhetorical approach. Like it's all very. It's it's very it's very apparent, I think, for people who can see through it. I mean, it's a little harder, I guess, if you're, you know, a big fan of these guys and you're maybe at the mercy of their um their uh like char- charisma. You know what I mean? But, but like for people on the outside, I think <laughs> they've they've been uh calling this out for a long time, and it's only been you know the past year or so where like Sargon knows joined uh, UKIP and. And then uh, Stefan has just like overtly come out making white nationalist statements, you know, talking <laughs> talking about how, you know, like the people in Poland, they've got it right because it's a white homogenous country. And just like it's it's a very it's a very strange time because like these 
these um these evolutions within the culture wars happen so slightly like they don't they don't happen overnight in a way where if you were just some impressionable young kid and you were following these characters that you could intuit on your own like oh this person must be bad or this person must be wrong yeah, for this you know it's it's a gradual and, thing yeah and i can see what makes them at least in the beginning what made them attractive was the fact that they did sort of argue from a point of a sort of superficial libertarian values mm-hmm. like we stand for freedom free speech the rights of the individual while the sjw's these culture marxists and feminists are trying to suppress it through their use of identity politics and anti-free speech you know no platforming you know that that whole debate right and then when people get sucked into it then you know the mask starts to start to fall off yeah it's a it's a it's just a it's a very slippery time for internet culture in this way just because i think you know and and a lot of this comes down to playing this game where the people who are are in those circles even even the overt white nationalists like uh richard spencer you know like these guys or, or even um maybe like a slightly less overt ones like tommy robinson who you know, depending on his audience, like, he will be over, but, like, if he's, like, the people like Richard Spencer or Tommy Robinson, when they go on certain platforms to, to speak about their views, they know when to dumb it down and when to sensitize, or sanitize, I should say, their views, and then they know when to, to drum up their audience. It's like a game, so a lot of for the critics, for, like, the people on the outside, like us, who are trying to point toward these figures and try to, like, I guess, dissect their worldview and, like, their rhetoric and then how they're they're damaging the the, the discourse, quote-unquote. Um, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a trip because a lot of what we're doing is we're having to play, like, not mind reader, because I think it's a little more obvious than that, but, like, we are still having to, like, interpret their intentions throughout their actions and it's this like slippery space because like for their fans like when you try to make these claims their fans will come out and they'll point to like a certain amount of videos or tweets and they'll be like look look like they they disavowed um white nationalism here or they said that they didn't want a violent uh, um a violently created ethno state here like it's going to be peaceful you know what i mean like they they like they have all this content to kind of it's it's like a game that they're playing and then it forces the critics to be in this defensive position where we have to interpret their intent through all these lenses and it really muddies it unfortunately muddies the waters and this is uh, again kind of tying it back yeah. to to dave rubin you know this is this is something that i think dave rubin can be blamed for just astronomically above almost anyone else for platforming a lot of these extreme or far-right figures who, when they go on his show, like a Tommy Robinson, when he goes on that show, he'll sanitize his views for that viewer base. And then on his own show, or like when he's giving speeches at a rally, 
you know, he's a lot more overtly xenophobic and bigoted in these ways. So it's like this weird, you know, it's it's a very very complex gray space to to critique from. Yeah, they look. They know what they're doing. They know when they go on Dave Rubin or people like that that they are talking to a more mainstream audience, and you know they have to make their ideas and their arguments more appealing to that. So they can't just come straight out and say, you know, for whites only. <laughs> you know, they they have to. You know, so that's why they appeal to, you know, liberal values, to free speech, you know, because, you know, who could argue against free speech? Right. We're all for free speech, you know, and if they could cast themselves victims who are being censored by, you know, the political correctness or the regressive left or whatever term you want to use, they think they can chip away and gain a few more sympathizers. Which they feel they will, which will, you know, legitimize their view and smuggle it into the mainstream discourse. Mm. I think um, I, I'd be interested to hear your take on this because I wonder if this is another area where there's there's space to have a, a valid critique of the left from the left in the sense where. Because, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, just this whole idea that the right has just done a, a phenomenal job, <laughs> for, for what it's worth, at, at taking over, like, like owning the culture war space by essentially, like, weighting these terms like identity politics and free speech and individualism and, and liberty, like, they're basically, like, really hijacking a lot of these terms and then placing them on a field where they have, like, the the advantage essentially it's like a home court advantage type of thing and because of that obviously in the culture wars it, it places people on the left in this weird defensive position where if you're trying to, to to critique the right from a place of you know moral authority and integrity you don't want to be like using their terminology because then it kind of plays into their game but in a way like do you find that the left has fallen short in any way in terms of like their uh their 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 hesitation i guess to champion the ideas behind like free speech or platforming in some of these ways that have become like center points in the culture wars as far as like people getting banned on twitter or kicked off youtube or whatever do you th- do you think there's any validity to that critique yes absolutely i think some parts of the left who should be very careful in uh, their critique of the free speech argument. That I think because there's this sort of naive view that the way to defeat, if we can just no platform enough of these right-wingers, if we can get, chuck, get them chucked out of social media, then we'll all be okay, okay. And to me, it's a very naive view because ultimately it is it will mean giving more power to the state or to these corporations like Google and Facebook right. to, to do the work that political struggles should do. Because like the way you fight against the ideas that people like Sargon or Milo or whoever promote is not to by censorship or state repression. It is by political and 
social struggle against the ideas and movements that they promote and to defeat them. And to that point, I mean, specifically, I know that Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, they've already been in these positions where they've, I know they've banned certain uh, Antifa groups and different leftist accounts. I mean, this is like, it's already happening on the left. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) Precisely. You know, that's, that's where, that's where it ultimately goes, that you make a rod for your own back Mm. and eventually it's going to boomerang onto you. Yeah, yeah, it's not. A, I, I, I couldn't agree more, man. I think it's definitely a, uh, it's a sticky situation to be in, and I know that a lot of people, specifically on Twitter, and and you know how Twitter is. It's a, it's a hell site. You know, like people are, people often bring out their worst sides on there, and I know there's this tendency from the left to just like celebrate um, deplatforming in a way where. You know, again, kind of going back to tr- trying to, to pick apart some of these critiques with more nuance, you know, because I know it's it's easy to, to not do that and to be more absolutist in our framing. But, I mean, I think there is some validity to the to the critiques in a way where, you know, someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, his when he was deplatformed, his career essentially did fall apart. So, like, the left then has this, this position where they can be like, oh, look, deplatforming worked and i think sort of similarly to um alex jones you know it's like taking alex jones off all these platforms like look now he's away from the mainstream it's sort of worked and i think largely like one of the biggest problems in in that approach is just that the people like milo yiannopoulos or like alex jones are extreme exceptions in like the general space of uh the political spectrum i mean there are there are people that go above and beyond the the normal the means of uh, manipulating platforms like these are provocateurs that you know have essentially hacked the system to build careers for themselves and i just think you know it's i i hate using the slippery slope argument because i know it can be a fallacy in a lot of ways but you know, in a lot of ways, when people, you know, jump on those bandwagons to be like, yeah, like, I'm glad they're gone. I do find there to be uh, space for critique to be like, okay, like, I understand that people view this as it worked, but we also shouldn't be celebrating these multi-billion dollar tech corporations kicking off whoever they want at any given time, usually with no reason. So, that's like that's the thing that I think but is worth pointing the big, out. The bigger problem, the deeper problem is, is that it outsources politics to corporations, mm-hmm. or in the case of hate speech laws, it outsources anti-racism to the state. And I think that's like it, where these questions become depoliticized and being turned into narrow legal questions, right? Rather than seen as a political and social struggle. Because whether you like it or not, you can chuck them out, you can chuck Sargon off of social media entirely, yet the ideas and beliefs that he argues for and promotes will still be there. They're still going to be there. And they're going to, still going to be there, and they're still going to fester. And you have to challenge it. And I don't, I, and I don't think just batting them does that. Mm. 
I completely agree. Yeah, it's just uh, we have to like really get better. Just like you were saying earlier, I mean, just with a lot of these critiques, we have to get better at getting to the bedrock of a lot of these problems and stop getting so caught up in the the surface level kind of. Tr- I don't want to call it nonsense, but it's a little bit more trivial when these things come up because these are these are things that come and go that they might be hot in the media for a day or two. But like over time, as we just kind of allow the uh, these patterns to keep occurring, it becomes a systemic problem, which we have to really what well, already is a systemic problem, but it worsens the uh, the um, height. It heightens it, I guess I should say. So we have to really get better at getting getting down to the um, the, the foundations of where that problem's coming from. So I just quickly sort of emphasize that in making this argument is not to say that these people shouldn't be challenged exactly it's the question of how how do you challenge them and censorship or outsourcing activism to corporations isn't is very ineffective and counterproductive right yeah i couldn't agree more i I just looked at the time i know you got to get out of here soon but uh just uh one more quick question just i guess we can just wrap this up this has been it's been a really great conversation i appreciate your time here but uh like moving forward i guess we could say in the broader political space you know between the culture wars and then the actual like political policy um debates that are going on across you know europe and and america right now like do you think just generally speaking that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better or what's your take on the next few years i think it's going to get worse before it gets better you know i think because with the rise of these anti-immigrant far-right movements with you know the christchurch massacre in Mm. um, new zealand unfortunately i think we're going to see a lot more of them and I think I think a lot of this is going to depend on whether Donald Trump gets reelected in mm. 2020. Yeah. And if he does, then yeah, we're, then that just confirms that we are in a very hard and long struggle, and it means that an alternative between the far right and decrepit neoliberalism is needed more than ever yeah absolutely and we yeah, we didn't even get to uh yeah just the rise in american and european or i should say global nationalism at this point it's not just yeah. uh american you and see it's everywhere it's uh you, you see it in india with the uh, bjp and their sort of hindu fascism where christians and muslims are increasingly being persecuted and you know hated upon because you know the bjp have a history of this yeah 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 it's uh moving forward i mean globally it really is and i don't i don't spend a terrible amount of time on like uh global like geopolitics but i know just from you know following like at a surface level in the news it really is wild just how the rise of uh populism and nationalism it's not a unique thing in america or parts of europe i mean it really is it's popping up everywhere and it's uh, again i think it speaks to these underlying uh 
bedrock issues that we're talking about here where it's it goes beyond it goes on a surface you know like it looks like oh these are just culture wars these are just you know political backlash but like underneath there's like real systemic uh decades long problems that the world is facing yes and it speaks to how um politics has is increasingly being put into cultural and identity terms mm. so you know we've seen like uh, what i think Slavo Zizek has sort of talked about this how politics itself has become culturalized so for, so political and economic struggles are translated into you know identity and culture yeah Exactly, which again goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is why I guess you can't you can't approach these topics through this simplistic, narrow lens of only looking through class or only looking through identity. You know, we have to we have to essentially reach a point, I think, where we're able to offer the most people. Uh, I shouldn't say most, the most diverse amounts of people, more productive and more inclusive narratives that they can actually cling on to that work. And it's not just like this national, because I think like the tendency in times like this is to uh, cling to nationalism because it's one of those things that unites people. You know, it's like, oh, like we're all, you know, we're all German, we're all Japanese, we're all American. And then when you cling to that, like it becomes this very, very easy bridge to attach race to it and then attach all these other forms of identity and then that essentially just creates more subdivisions within people so we have to we have to get better and more nuanced i think at some some form of overarching narrative that brings the most people together in a more progressive way and doesn't you know doesn't lend itself to nationalism and to exclusive means of oppression or forms of bigotry well that means well that means uh, reviving a new universalism and humanism mm. and that that's yeah that's easier said than done <laughs> <laughs> awesome well yeah ralph I, I really appreciate um your insights and the time to do this you know again i think i think your voice is just really really helpful especially in like the twitter discord i hate using the word discourse it's so funny but we'll just call it that i mean it's uh it's very helpful to have people like you who are clearly approaching these topics with a level of you know careful nuance where you know in a space where most people are just completely throwing caution to the wind and being reckless with their words and and their approach so you know i really appreciate your takes and um, just your your involvement with uh, these culture wars and these political movements. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, man. All right. You too.